Today's reading is Paul the Apostle's words in Philippians 4, 10 through 23. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I sent out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your amount. I, am re- I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have re- received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragment offering an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, that was the best scripture reading I've heard in a long, long time. Um... My name is Steve Porter. I teach, that was my daughter, I teach uh, theology at Biola University, and I find my way uh, up here in front of you from time to time and at other churches uh, from time to time. And I don't know about you, but, but sometimes I need a reminder of why we, why we do this thing called church. Um, there's lots of different ways to think about that. I don't know about you, but I, I grew up in a family that, that went to church every morning. I don't think we ever asked the question, why? We just did it. Uh, it was part of our culture. Uh, every Sunday, we were in church. And uh, there's something good about that habit, but it can also become a little mindless. It can become kind of unintentional, just going through the motions. In the worst cases, sometimes we, we end up thinking church attendance somehow makes God love us more or makes us more spiritual, and, and, then, and then attending church falls into a kind of legalism that can really rob our souls from something that's meant to be life-giving. So there's lots of ways to think about why we gather together as the family of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And and one one way to think about it is represented by a quote that actually one of you passed along to me not too long ago. It's a quote by Henry Nouwen. Nouwen says this, It's far from easy to keep living where God is. Therefore, God gives you people who help to hold you in that place and call you back to it every time you wander off. Uh, We gather together to hold on to one another, 
to hold each other and to thereby hold one another before the living God. Because when we came to Jesus, we didn't just come into a new belief system, right? Uh, We came into a new way of life with Jesus. It's what Jesus called life in the kingdom, life in the rule and reign of his, his Father. And this way of life is not just a, a things we believe, but it's also a set of practices. It's the Jesus way of life. And some of those practices involve one another. We come together to hold on to one another, to hold each other before the living God. And as now it says, that's not an easy thing to do. I think of the, the hymn, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But it's not just that when we come to Jesus, we come to a new belief system or a new set of practices. We also come to have a new ontology. A new ontology. Now, that's not a word that uh, we use every day, though there's a couple of you who might. Um, but we talk about ontology, we're talking about being, we're talking about what's real, what exists. And for the Christian, ultimate reality has a name. Actually, it has three names. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When, when the particle physicists finally scratched their way down to the fundamental constituents of reality, and they probably will, you know what they're going to see down there? They're going to see something that looks like love. Because on a Christian ontology, at the bottom of it all is a loving triunity of persons that spoke matter into existence. And that God of love has called us into relationship with himself. This is our new ontology. This is our our new way of understanding reality. This is what's ultimately real, is that there's a God who exists in loving triunity. And that God wants to love us and wants us to learn to love him. And so we come into this relationship with him. And he doesn't, he doesn't just want to save us from our sins. He wants to save us from ourselves. And, and he does that by reconnecting us to himself. And we enter into this new way of life with Jesus in the keeping of his Father. And, and, I, and I mention all this this morning because our passage today is directing us to this reality. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. If you have a pew Bible, that's on page 982. Uh, We're finishing our series in the book of Philippians. And um, when we we turn to Paul, uh, we really need to pay careful attention to his words. Uh, Because Paul was a master of the Jesus way. Paul was a master of life in the Spirit. Paul is one of the first people that Jesus got a hold of. And and one of the first people that Jesus endorsed to be the primary proponent of his way of life. And so Paul understands this. In fact, Paul, uh, it's interesting, Paul didn't walk with Jesus while Jesus was on earth. He was a persecutor of the church. 
Paul was actually an enemy of Jesus. Paul comes to Jesus after the resurrection and the ascension. I think, it's, I think it's part of the reason why God chose Paul. Because Paul's a lot like you and I. We didn't walk with Jesus when he was incarnate on earth either. We started out as enemies of Christ. And look what Jesus did through Paul. Paul got to the place where he was able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Here's the one apostle who didn't even walk with Jesus while Jesus was on earth, and he has the gall to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul got it, and in this passage, we're going to see, uh, I think, a little window into what Paul got. So the, the background here of the book of Philippians is important, as others have mentioned before me. Paul is writing this letter uh, from prison, probably in Rome. Looks like he's going to end up being in prison for about two years. And while he's in prison, the church in Philippi hears of his predicament, and they send Epaphroditus to him. Uh, Epaphroditus brought probably money that he then purchased, food, clothing, whatever Paul needed. And then Epaphroditus came and stayed with Paul in prison. Uh, the prisons of those days, they didn't provide much for you, but others could come and be with you. Those others could leave, but of course Paul couldn't. He was stuck. He was in chains, he tells us. And so now Epaphroditus has gotten ill sometime along this way, so Paul's sending Epaphroditus back to the church in Philippi with this letter. It's one of the only letters Paul writes uh, that he's not angry at the church. If you think about Colossians and Galatians and Corinthians, Paul is, is correcting them. But with the Philippian letter, he's actually grateful. And he's been trying to say thanks the entire letter, but he hasn't quite said it. Until we get to this passage, and it's a very odd passage because he he almost says thanks, and then it looks like he takes it away. So he says this in verse uh, 10. I greatly uh, rejoiced in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me by sending Epaphroditus. He says, I I, I rejoiced about this. But then he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. Now this is an interesting situation. Paul kind of sounds like one of these people who says thanks but I didn't really need it. Right. And um, actually, Paul's saying something a little bit deeper here about need. Because he does go on to say, uh, thanks for providing for my needs. I'm, I'm well provided for because of your gifts. So he didn't reject the gift. He, he needed it. He accepted it. And yet, what's he saying here that he's not really in need? See, at some level, Paul's trying to still help the Philippians understand this Jesus way of life. This, this way of life he tells us he's learned. And what he's saying is, is, thank you, I needed those things, I took them, I'm using them, I appreciate them, but I want to let you know something. Even if you hadn't given those gifts, I still would have been okay. Because at a deeper level, Paul's telling us, He's satisfied. At a deeper level, his needs are being met such that the the way he wants life to go doesn't have to go that way. He'll be okay. See, he goes on to say, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now just pause and think about what life would be like for you, for me, if we were content whatever the circumstances. I don't know about you, but I I get discontent pretty quickly. My wife and I right now are staring at our Christmas tree thinking, I wish we would have gotten a different one. (laughs) I get discontent with how I look, with the car I drive, with how my day is going at work, 
with how my performance is going. I can get discontent with my family. And discontentment is, is a horrible situation to be in because when we're discontent, we don't like the way things are going. Things are not going the way we want them to, and we're bugged about it. And it leads to stress, leads to anxiety, uh, leads to anger and manipulation and control where we try to get things to go the way we want them to go. It can lead to unkindness, a lack of generosity. And yet Paul says he's not dealing with all of that. He's learned how to be content in any and every circumstance. Wow. How'd you learn that, Paul? What would life be like if instead of agitation and discontent, our lives were more pervaded by peace and joy? And not because everything's going our way, but even when things don't go our way. Well, what's, what's this that Paul's learned? He goes on to say in verse 12 that he's learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Notice two things here. First, he had to learn this. Paul didn't find out how to be content in all circumstances the day he got saved. This was part of a learning process. He entered into life with Jesus by the Spirit, and he learned how to become content. We see in other places in Paul's life where he wasn't content. He had to learn this. And and he calls it a secret. It wasn't something that was just on the surface, it looks like. It, it looks like there's things about the Jesus way that we have to investigate. We have to find our way into. In fact, this, this word secret is only used one time in the New Testament. It has the idea of initiation into something. Paul had to be initiated into a way of life, a new ontology, A new way of understanding reality such that you cannot have your needs met and it's still okay. That's a different way of life. And so Paul had to learn this. But what did he learn? Well, here we have to be careful because we're liable to put this on a bumper sticker or a t-shirt or a poster. In fact, um, I remember seeing a poster once with this guy with his shirt off on top of this I won't take my shirt off, don't worry. Um, uh, a guy with a shirt off on top of this mountain, his, his biceps bulging, and he obviously just climbed the mountain with the sun setting, and the, the phrase says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So I looked for that poster online, I googled it. I didn't find the one I remember, but I found this one. It's close, right? This guy's free climbing, it looks like. And then I found this one. <laughs> And when I saw that guy, I thought, no, even with Jesus' help, you're in trouble. <laughs> you're, 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 you're a goner. I don't know how you got there, but that's not a good situation. So, and then I found this one. I kind of like this one. He's, do, he's doing a one-arm push-up. But I, I like to end with this one because this, this helps show how ridiculous that interpretation of this passage is. Paul is not saying that with Jesus on my side, I can do a one-arm push-up or I can scale a mountain. He's not saying that with Jesus on my side, everything's going to go my way. In fact, he's saying the exact opposite. He's in prison. He doesn't know when he's getting out. He may never get out. For all he knows, he's the next one who's going to lose his life for the sake of Christ. In fact, he even intimates that in chapter 2 of Philippians. 
that he might die. And Paul says, I'm content when things don't go my way, when, when I don't climb the mountain, when I can't do push-ups, because there's another reality in his life. He calls it the strengthening presence of Christ. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Um, now here we have to be careful again, because what does it mean to be strengthened by Christ? Is this some sort of magic that happens? We see it a lot in Paul's writings and elsewhere in Scripture. In 2 Timothy, he says, The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Uh, He prays for the Ephesians that they'd be strengthened with power by the Spirit in their inner being. He has his own experience of the thorn in 2 Corinthians 12, where God says to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And then Paul says, For when I'm weak, then I'm dunamis, then I'm strong, I'm strengthened. Paul learned this reality of the strengthening presence of Christ. He learned how to attach himself to it, to receive from it. But here's another place. For this I toil, Paul says, struggling with all Christ's energy. It's the same root word, dunamis, that he powerfully works within me. What is this relationship that empowers, that strengthens, that changes Paul's experience? And here, just really quickly, I think we need to be careful of this because we're liable to reduce relationship with Christ to some felt experience of Christ. That what this means is I have to somehow drum up some sense that Jesus is always with me. Now, I certainly think we can feel Christ's presence from time to time, but Scripture actually talks about a level of awareness and influence of God in our lives that's not felt experience. Scripture often talks about God as as kind of an organic reality, a nourishing reality. Not necessarily this sense of God's presence, but this experience of God. Think here of Paul saying that the Spirit of God cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father. That the fundamental reality for the human person is at the core of our being, the Spirit of God is saying, you have a Father. You have a Father who knows what you need. Now, I don't know about you, but I've listened for that voice. I kind of feel like Robin Williams in the Dead Poet Society. Carpe, carpe diem. You know, Abba, Abba. I've never heard it. See, the Abba Father is not something we experience in some sort of conscious awareness, but no doubt it's going on. We, we are being influenced by God's Spirit. Most of us probably take it for granted. You just think it's normal. Think of David in Psalm 51. He says, cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. See, the Old Testament saints knew what it was like for the Spirit of God to depart. In the New Covenant, the Spirit of God doesn't depart. He's always there. He's always crying out. He's always testifying with our spirit. And so we've, we've probably gotten used to it. But no doubt, however you feel that feels normal to you, if the Spirit of God left you, it would change. See, there's a new ontology. There's a new reality. God is with us. Jesus didn't just come to earth, Emmanuel, God is with us, but he stayed. When he sends his disciples out in Matthew 28 to go into all the world and make disciples, he says, and lo, I am with you always. I'm going to stay with you. He's not going to leave them as orphans. He doesn't leave us as orphans, but he sends his spirit. 
And that spirit can change our experience of reality. We shouldn't be surprised about that because that's how relationships work. Relationships influence how we feel and experience life. And so as we begin to carry God with us more and more throughout our day, as we begin to practice together how to be more receptive to God's presence and His love, we begin to experience things differently. Now I'm going to jump ahead because we just need to do that. But here are some other passages where, where uh, Paul in particular is talking about this this nourishing reality of God. Uh, He says in Ephesians that we are rooted and grounded in agape, in God's love. And this this word for rooted is the same word you'd use for a plant rooted in soil. So, we come to God and we come together to learn how to receive more from Him. And yet, perhaps for many of us, we say, well, well, why doesn't this go more easily? Why, why doesn't this relationship with God transform me more quickly? And that's a long story. If you have a semester, you can come to Biola University and we can take a whole class on that. But here it is in a nutshell. This is C.S. Lewis. I love Lewis, especially when he talks about his own experience. He says, I say my prayers... I read a book of devotion. I prepare for or receive the sacrament. But while I do these things, there is, so to speak, a voice inside me that urges caution. It tells me to be careful, to keep my head, not to go too far, not to burn my boats. I come into the, into the presence of God with a great fear, lest anything should happen to me within that presence, which will prove too intolerably inconvenient when I come out again into my, quote, ordinary life. I don't want to be carried away into any resolution which I shall afterwards regret, for I know I shall be feeling quite different after breakfast. I don't want anything to happen to me at the altar, which will run up too big of a bill to pay then. One of the things I love about this quote is, um, if you ever saw pictures of C.S. Lewis, you often see a little stream of smoke in the picture, because Lewis and his brother, were they smoked constantly. Cigarettes, uh, pipes. Lewis often had holes burned in his coats because he would put his pipe or his un, uh, uh, still lit cigarettes in his pockets and they would burn holes in them. And he says here in his essay, The Weight of Glory, when he says, I know I shall be feeling quite different after breakfast, he uses the illustration of an after breakfast cigarette. You know, I don't want to go to the altar and, and then and, and end up giving up my cigarettes because I know I'll really want one after breakfast. This is the 1940s. They didn't know it was killing them, right? So, you know, this is... But, but I love that realism that... God, I need you, I want you, but what might it cost me to surrender? I love the poem that Chris read to us. One only has to surrender, you preached. Open both arms to the inner, the ever-present embrace, which props one up, outreaches every grasp. And yet that embrace claims all of us. That embrace of love wants all of us. And so as we learn to receive more of his life in us, we also learn to say with Paul, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's that process of dying to self. Let me end with this. You know, this is Advent. 
We celebrate the arrival, the coming of Jesus. Of course, again, he didn't just come, but he remained. I think of uh, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. We often take that to be a salvation verse. But it's really a sanctification verse. It's Jesus speaking to the church of Laodicea. They're, they're Christians. They're lukewarm Christians, but they're Christians. And he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and, and I'll nourish them. I'll, I'll sup with them. I'll have a meal with them and he or she with me. That Jesus didn't just come and then leave, but he came and he remained. Lo, I'll be with you always. My wife, Alicia, a few years back, took two words and she made a little uh, display that she puts up every Christmas. And the two words are, just come. Just come. And that's a double invitation. That's us saying to Jesus, Jesus, just come. I opened the door. It's also Jesus saying to us, just come. Come unto me. As we live in this new reality that Christ's strengthening presence is with us, it's not a bad prayer just to raise our palms and say, just come. Let's do that now. Lord, I thank you for your people. I thank you for your people here at Grace. As a friend of mine is often postured these days with her hands uh, palmed upwards, Lord, we just want to, as best we can, present ourselves before you and say, just come. We need more of you in our lives. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Help us to hold on to one another and thereby hold one another before you, Lord. In your name, amen.